So hello and welcome to My Dilemma's Top Picks. For new listeners, I am Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Kandeloff, film programmer, journalist and researcher. In Top Picks, we use post-colonial, Afro-pessimism and Brudeauian theories to discuss race and class in drama, documentary, mystery and horror films. Now in its 10th year, My Die champions independent filmmaking and in using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and oft ignored voices. We're going to start with our top picks of the week, then discuss the 2020 film Keeney Meeny with our special guest, director Phil Miller, who authored a book by the same name published by Pluto Press in January of this year. In Keeney Meeny, Miller investigates the origins of British mercenaries and contractors in recent proxy wars and the extent of government culpability. You can see the film at yardstickfilms.co.uk forward slash Keeney hyphen Meany. So Apla, would you like to start with your top picks? Because I've dropped the ball again this that week. That means you're busy with work and I'm, <laughs> I'm not, so it's all good. <laughs> it really doesn't though. And I set aside, there's these really good um, streaming services I'm now paying for that I've yet to really use. So I'm, I'll be okay. on top of it for next time. Um, well, to be fair, these last two weeks, I haven't actually watched anything of note in terms of film, so I'm just going to skip that. I'd rather highlight a couple of festivals. So ITFA is coming up. That's the Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam. And that will be live and online this year. So I'll be curious to see how that pans out. And that's from November the 18th to December the 6th. It's the world's biggest documentary film festival. So screenings will feature in some theatres across the Netherlands and online. And it's on top of its official selection, which will be unveiled on November the 9th. The ITFA, so it stands for International Documentary Festival Amsterdam, will present the best of fests. And that's a lineup of three films that, and I quote, lit up the selections of Berlin, Sundance, Cannes and many more festivals. So you can catch, whoops, (laughs) scroll down by mistake. Anyway, they'll unveil the whole thing on the 9th of November, so I'll be sure to uh, keep an eye out on that. The other one is the very prolific London Palestine Film Festival, which seems to have a screening on every month. So I I think I literally talked about it a couple of months back, didn't I? But they're back and there's a screening, well, a bunch of screenings at the Barbican. So it's a selection of screenings and most of them, all of them are at the Barbican, but some of them will also be available online. And they're very, very strong. It's a short but a very strong selection. So I want to quickly say um, it features Najwa Najjar, her latest romantic drama. Um, she's an excellent filmmaker. She's a really nice person. <laughs> so do watch it. And Kamel El Jafari's documentary, which is based on footage from surveillance cameras. So he uses surveillance uh, the actual footage from the surveillance cameras to build his documentary. They're showing Gaza Mon Amour, which stars Hayama Bess, which a lot of people might know from the OA and her, especially her role in Succession. She plays the wife of, I forget the character's names, but um, Brian Cox's character's wife, basically. So that was in Cannes. And it seems to have done pretty well. And then 1982, which stars Nadine Labaki, which is one of Lebanon's most famous cinematic exports. So she's the director of the film Caramel. And the one I'm the most keen on watching is called Western Arabs. It's a film that was made over 12 years, which examines through the director's own family history, the impact of having to flee your home country and the intergenerational repercussions and trauma of that. 
So that's pretty much it uh, from me. Maybe I'll quickly say a word about the haunting of Bly Manor because we talked about it last time. I wasn't as impressed as I was with the haunting of Hill House. As a horror fan, I wanted a hell of a lot more horror and it was it was sad and it was sweet, but it just wasn't scary enough. I was surprised to find that we only got one recurring actor from the first season because I thought the whole idea was it was like a repertoire of actors. But uh, there we go. It's still worth a watch. Um, the set pieces are wonderful. And that's it. And we can move on. So, Sakura, no, nothing? No, it's really bad. Nothing. But you know what I started to watch was, I don't know if you've ever heard of Performa. So the website is performaarts.org and there's a streaming video exhibition and you can't stop it. You can all, and I've had it on for a couple of days now because I was trying to, initially I went to the website because I wanted to see the film Midnight in Paris, but I have to watch it on demand because mm -hmm. you can't watch it live streaming out of the US. But I came across, so it was shown oh, um, yeah. the, I don't want to say, because it, it wasn't the premiere, but at any rate, they did a live stream of Midnight in Paris, but I couldn't watch that. But they're doing another exhibition. So it's just playing films over and over. And I've been trying to catch the Kara Walker film. But since I've not watched any of them, no, nothing to say. So that was a long way of saying no. But I think the exhibition will be on for a few more days until the 28th. So it looks like something to catch. Um, yeah, to catch if you can. So it's uh, performa-arts.org. We'll add a link to that. Thank you very much. All right, Phil, the floor is yours if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Phil Miller, the um, one of the directors of a new documentary, Kini Mini, Britain's Private Army, um, which came out on the 8th of October. And it was made by um, Yardstick Films and released on the Declassified UK website. And the documentary, um, it took about four years to make and it exposes um, the history of this British mercenary company, Keeney Meeny Services, or KMS, and the role it played in Sri Lanka's civil war in the 1980s, the extent of which is only now, um, through the film and through my book, um, beginning to come to light. Thank you very much. So what we'll do is, I mean, I've got a series of questions, and I assume Sakura has as mm -hmm. well, so we'll take it in turn, I guess. My first question is, because it took uh, four years to make, what were the biggest hurdles that you'd encountered when you were doing all this research? Yeah, we faced lots of barriers. Um, we probably should have just given up, um, but uh, we kept going. Uh, thankfully, it was worth it in the end. Um, so we had difficulties getting access to people. Um, a lot of people involved in the company were... Um, either no longer around or were very secretive, um, didn't want to talk to us or, or were just impossible to even track down. Um, and we also had to film in, in Sri Lanka, which was um, which is the war's over, but it's still a very heavily surveilled society uh, where the Tamil minority live under military occupation. So that made it very difficult trying to reach survivors of, of massacres which the British mercenaries had been involved in um, and, and talking to them and we also just faced uh, huge financial hurdles and the kind of deep malaise of the uh, UK um, broadcast um, documentary sector uh, and the general apathy they have to investigative journalism um, these days. 
When you talk about the documentary sector, who do you mean? Did you approach institutions to try and get funding and help? Yeah, with so that? we approached certainly some of the kind of main funding institutions, but we also pitched uh, directly to TV commissioners um, on some of the kind of investigative strands. Uh, there seems to be a real kind of siloed mentality in TV uh, between current affairs and history. And our documentary is based in the 1980s, but the information is only coming to light now and it still has implications for what's happening today. Um, and they couldn't seem to get their heads around the fact that this was a film about the past past that informs the present. It either had to be a history film or a current affairs film, and they couldn't seem to um, get their heads around how this film kind of straddled both the past and the present, and that it was a story worth telling. So um, that was uh, quite frustrating, but I think, um, yeah, that's a, a major limitation of of the kind of TV documentary sector here. I think in the past, if you look back at World in Action in the 1980s and the kind of films they were able to make then, I think they were a lot more kind of creative and willing to take risks. Um, whereas now I think there's a very uh, cautious uh, mentality and, and quite kind of superficial uh, style of documentary that they um, are willing to commission. Well, that's really interesting that you should mention World in Action because um, so in the, a couple of weeks ago in the last episode, we interviewed Tom Barlow from the Media Fund and one of his picks of the week, interestingly, was Kini Mini. And he talked about the way it was made and he felt very much that it was in the vein of uh, World in Action. And he, he said that it was unfortunate that these kinds of documentaries just aren't made anymore. And instead we get sensationalist stuff like uh, Panorama, mm. for example. So... Is that the, really the reason you were given for the lack of support? Was that they couldn't quite pigeonhole it? Yeah, I think there there was that. I think um, you know we had a Channel Four said to us they'd done Sri Lanka, uh, <laughs> which was a kind of extraordinary response. Um, <laughs> Nothing else to say about it, exactly. Country, you know, they, they'd made a, <laughs> a successful documentary um, with Callum McRae, who is one of our kind of advisors um and even though his documentary was very different had a very different focus they felt that that's you know they didn't need to do anything again on sri lanka for the foreseeable future which is yeah was his a historical piece or was it current affairs <laughs> well callum's piece focused on the end of the war which uh, is a bit more uh. bit more recent um so i think it was a bit more straightforward for them to to commission and obviously callum is a much more established filmmaker um but uh, he was certainly very supportive of our film and, and felt it deserved to be to be on television but um the commissioners clearly had a different different idea um but uh no i mean it's it is a, a struggle um it's very rare for documentaries like this to to get on television um so um that's why we've made it available on on vimeo um for people to watch now um this is something that came up before we did a one of our podcast episodes for example was with uh, was an interview of Pablo Navaretti so he is the director of the film No Extradition which looks at the case for um, of supporters of Julian mm. Assange and one of the topics that came up was the impact of um, of such work and whistleblowing in general and the problem is um, what I'm always curious to know and to find out is where you as a documentary filmmaker feel that the documentary can have um, an impact. So who are you, are, what are you hoping to see? Are you hoping that it would shock people? Because the, the worry is, and what I've seen a lot 
and what, having worked on investigative doc, docs myself is that a lot of the information e, we're preaching to the converted so the people that it would sh, it would shock and anger already know it mm-hmm. and the people that that don't seem to find justification in it and a lot of it I don't know I mean some of it is down to just a, a racist attitude towards people in other countries whose lives just don't seem to matter as much and as long as we can preserve our own security this is all done for the greater good and what I'm trying in a very roundabout way of asking is how can we how can this work have the impact it deserves and change things yeah I think there was definitely an attitude particularly among the people who ran the company the mercenary company that Tamil lives didn't matter um, and that there'd never really be any kind of comeback on them for what they did in Sri Lanka. So I think the fact that I have gone to the lengths of writing this book and making this film um, is probably a level of scrutiny that they hadn't bargained for. Um, and it has sparked a Metropolitan Police war crimes investigation. So I think it does add to the fact the film's out there now and it's you know it's much easier to watch a 50-minute film than read a 300-page book. So... I think that means that, you know, it will make it a bit harder for the police to just brush the investigation under the carpet. It, you know, it publicizes the issue more and means that they will have to um, do the investigation a bit more thoroughly than they might have had to do otherwise. Um, but I, I think actually during the process of making the film, you know, we confront some, well, particularly one former mercenary um, at his home. Uh, we, we kind of, we doorstep him. Um, and he shouts at us from his upstairs window to to bugger off his land. But I think that's probably the, the closest to any kind of reckoning with his past that he's had to encounter. And he actually passed away the month after my book came out. So there's no possibility of the police investigation having any consequences for him. Mm. But just the fact that, you know, a documentary crew showed up at his house and asked him questions about his involvement in war crimes... You know, on that's that's more than probably anyone else has has put him has put to him. So it's, it's just the process of making the film, I think, did put pressure on some of the figures in a way that they had hadn't had to deal with for 30 years since they were involved in this war, uh, because there had just been complete impunity for them. So yeah, I don't think we should underestimate the impact of of you know putting people on camera and putting difficult questions to them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, since, since the film's come out, there has been more, um, politicians putting questions to, to different authorities. Um, and so I think that's another, another level of, of kind of scrutiny and so on. But, um, no, I think documentaries in and of themselves, you know, aren't going to change the world, but certainly they can be a powerful educational tool. But I think also it's interesting (laughs) how films can link up to existing movements. And I think that's where it has to be you know, the matchup, because I find that that's often a struggle you see with, let alone uh, nonprofits that are trying to encourage social change or seek some sort of justice, whether it be the legal system or otherwise changing the culture. They don't have that communications arm and the coverage they do get is not told through their lens. Right. So it's interesting. I mean, so is there some sort of movement that this that could use this film? Or is there any sort of other campaign that's working for justice? Because you did feature some refugees in your film. So can they use that as a tool at all? Yeah, I mean, the, um, I mean, actually, one of the, the refugees 
in the film. Um, so some of our research into the Sri Lankan police unit um, that had been um, that had tortured him and uh, his people in his community that that evidence was used and and helped him to win his asylum case. But on a wider level, I mean, the Tamil movement is a bit more fragmented now since the end of the war, but there's certainly a younger generation coming through now um, in the UK who are kind of struggling a bit with their where they fit into all of this, you know, the fact that they're Tamils living in the UK. And I think the film helps to understand helps anyone understand Britain's role in that conflict and why so many Tamils had to flee and why they came to the UK. There's a, a saying, uh, we we were here, we are here because you were there. Um, and I think that the film helps to kind of give evidence about the fact that um, Britain was heavily involved in, in escalating the war in Sri Lanka. And so, you know, the fact that 200,000 Tamil um, expatriates living in the UK it's um there's a reason for that and um if things have been done differently in the 1980s if mercenaries hadn't been sent to sri lanka then maybe so many tamils wouldn't have had to leave sri lanka so i think it, it helps with some of those um issues that, that are going on but uh obviously there is a wider kind of movement against war and against uh, the arms trade and so on so i think it, it feeds into that to some extent Stop me if I'm wrong, but on the ground and practically the legal case uh, where you've managed to make headway legally is specifically in the cases where the mercenary army uh, tortured people and committed war crimes. But it's not putting the role of the British government under the spotlight as such, is it? Me, as a, as a human being that's against British intervention, I can frown upon it, but it's not illegal, so to speak. Yeah, so when the book came out, um, about a dozen Tamil community groups wrote to the Foreign Secretary, the British Foreign Secretary, asking for a public inquiry into the UK government's role in supporting this mercenary company in Sri Lanka. And the Foreign Office replied and said, um, you know, this company was nothing to do with us um but the allegations you've made are very serious um we suggest you ask the metropolitan police war crimes unit to look into the allegations against the company so the the foreign office were very keen to kind of distance themselves from the mercenaries and that was you know from the outset from the 1980s they had this strategy of having plausible deniability and being at arm's length from what the mercenaries were doing so that they could deny involvement but of course basically the british government itself denies involvement in action in sri lanka they deny that they were the british government denies that they had control over the mercenary company but the reality is much more complicated um particularly as i show in the book by going through the foreign office's own files from the 1980s the british government lawyers were saying you should um you have the power to remove passports british passports from the mercenaries to stop them traveling to sri lanka um so if you want to stop them that's what you should do that was the legal advice and the british government didn't follow it they didn't remove their passports they allowed them to keep going out there but surely if the British government wasn't involved in the first place, why would there be mercenaries there? 
Well, exactly. So I mean, it's not Kini Mini Services or G4S or any of these companies. They're not just acting for their own interests. Yeah. So the British government facilitated uh, Kini Mini's ability to go and work in Sri Lanka because they saw it as being in Britain's strategic interests. Um, and if they wanted to stop them, they did legally. They had the power to remove their passports, but they, they deliberately chose not to do that. So when they try and tell the Tamil community now, we had nothing to do with it. Obviously, they are um, being misleading. And they would prefer for the police investigation to run its course and just look at the company and the surviving members of the company who are now few and far between, um, rather than at the British state's direct role. Um, But there is another legal process going on in parallel, which is at the Information Tribunal. Um, And this is as a result of uh, a freedom of of information request that I made to the Foreign Office for a file about Kinimini, which um, Mm -hmm. was still being censored. Um, and isn't being released to the public. Um, and in that case, it's the, the Foreign Office directly who are arguing that the file should stay secret. So there you can see that actually they are very keen to cover up what's happened um, and information about their involvement in what's happened. So that that case does shine a bit more light on the UK state's role. Um, however, it's just a, a civil case in the information tribunal. It doesn't have any criminal bearing of it as such. The crowd, do you have any questions? I'm firing off one after the other. I actually wanted to say why Sri Lanka. So for you, why did you even want to tell that story? Mm. Um, when I was at university, we had a um, a refugee support group. And this was around 2011. So about two years after the war ended in Sri Lanka. And the UK Home Office said it was safe to send Tamils back to Sri Lanka. And we were getting reports that when they arrived at the airport in Sri Lanka, some of them were being taken away and tortured. So I found that quite shocking at the time that the UK government would knowingly send people back to a country where they were going to get tortured. Um, and there was a, a long campaign to to eventually stop um, those mass deportations to Sri Lanka. But through that process, I learned or started to learn more about the history of UK foreign policy to Sri Lanka. Um, a Tamil refugee told me that in the 1980s, this British mercenary company had been there, but they didn't know much about the details. So um, I started to go to the National Archives in London. And um, by that stage, the files, after 30 years, British government files are meant to be declassified. So the paper trail was starting to emerge. Um, and so that's sort of what had sparked my interest. And then the reason why I was able to dig deeper and shed new light on it. Have you, uh, through this work, have you looked at any of the other uh, private, I guess, private armies that the British state Yeah, so uses? my focus has been on, on Kini Mini because um, there was a real gap in, in the kind of the records there. No one else had written anything kind of significant about it. But one of the guys who ran Kini Mini, this chap, Colonel Jim Johnson, um, who was a, a British special forces officer um, and, and was an aide to, to the Queen. Prior to setting up Kini Mini, he had run a, a covert war in Yemen in the 1960s um, in North Yemen. So he, he had previous involvement uh, in a mercenary war, which was um, backed by, by MI6, by British intelligence. So that's quite a, quite a shady episode that he was involved in um, and, and huge numbers of people uh, died in that war. So um, as a character, you can trace his involvement in, in, in many mercenary conflicts uh, under different um, guises. Um, but no, I think that 
obviously after Kinumini um, in the 1980s, we had companies like Executive Outcomes, Sandline, who were very active in, in African countries and in um, Papua New Guinea. But um, the, the files on those will only just start to come out um, in the next few years, really. So um, there might be scope to do more research there. But I'm also I'm interested in the kind of the lack of any regulation against mercenaries. I wrote an article about uh, the fact that in the 1980s, the UN tried to ban mercenaries. They tried to have, have an international treaty against mercenaries, which the UK was very opposed to. Um, so I found that quite interesting, the fact that the UK, despite what it says in public about mercenaries being kind of bad actors um, in private, it's actually very resistant to any kind of binding international laws to stop mercenaries, be they British or Russian. The advantages for the British government are clear, but on the ground, what's in it for the companies? Is it simply because they're just being paid to be there or are they they're yeah, given I think, contracts? I think and so there's on? a lot of people who've served in the military who find it very difficult to adjust to civilian life and for them working as a mercenary or as a private military contractor whatever they want to call it is a way to kind of carry on that lifestyle um, often with better pay but with perhaps less um, sort of safety structures around them and and to extend their their careers as as, as warriors as, as they would see it um, because it's, they find it hard to adjust to, to doing other things. Um, so with Kini Mini, most of them had served in kind of end of empire conflicts. They were kind of colonial warriors who, if the British Empire was still going, they'd have quite happily served in, in colonial outposts around the world. But the, you know, by that stage, the empire was starting to contract, and so they had these these other out um, outlets for their for their skills. Um, in these kind of post-colonial conflicts where Britain was trying to maintain its influence in, in more deniable ways. Um, I think more recently you've seen you know huge numbers of people serve in Iraq and Afghanistan in the wars there and finding it hard to readjust to civilian life. And so when these um, military contractors offer them jobs out there, um, some of them are quite keen to, to go back to those places. Sorry, actually, I want to go back on one thing you said, because I thought that was quite interesting. You said that the papers were going to come out. What do you actually mean by that? What's the process of uh, this information being revealed? Yeah, so it's um, it's called the 30-year rule, and it just means that 30 years after the UK government department writes a, a secret document, it then has to be made public, although there are lots of kind of exceptions to that rule. Um, but it means that papers from the 1990s about British foreign policy should now start to be released to the public at the National Archives. And those are records that are written by British embassies around the world, by ambassadors, defence attaches, other diplomats, and sent back to London. And so it's a, it's a paper trail, um, you know, like the WikiLeaks type cables, um, but not necessarily digitized um, and from a different era but it's you know diplomatic cables which as we've seen from WikiLeaks um, and from my book can contain hugely revealing information about the true nature of western foreign policy. And do you then as a as an investigative journalist 
look up these documents and then you build a case around them? Yeah, I mean, we've declassified. Um, our editor is Mark Curtis, who made his name really by writing a series of books which were based solely on declassified files at the UK National Archives. So um, his books show the true nature of British foreign policy um, using quotes from the horse's mouth, you know, from the diplomats who were directly involved and, and showing the cables that they were sending back to London about what Britain's real interests and roles were in, in these conflicts, you know, the kind of oil interests and commercial interests that were at the front of their minds. So it's a really powerful source uh, to use, but most of the media don't use it or only use it in a very kind of trivial way um, around New Year for sort of tongue-in-cheek um, uh, stories during um, quiet times of, of the news. But um, no, if you go through there seriously, then there, there is huge amounts of information Um to, to be obtained. Well, do you think that just has to do with the news cycle, though, where, like you're saying, there isn't that sort of investment in investigative journalism that will take a year or two versus something that, you know, you can churn out much quicker? I mean, why do you think there isn't that sort of support to invest in that kind of that kind of journalism to uncover those stories? Yeah, I think, I mean, actually, it doesn't take, <laughs> there's, there's so much low-hanging fruit at the archives because um, the papers just aren't being scrutinised really by, by anyone apart from a handful of, of journalists. So I think, no, it's just that British, most British journalists don't seem to be serious about holding their own government to account uh, for what it does around the world. So I think that's, that's why the files go neglected um, or are only used in a very kind of superficial way. So there's a, a press... A press day um, kind of in December each year when the National Archives invite journalists to come and look at the papers that are about to be released but the National Archives put together a kind of press pack or press release um, about what they think are the most interesting stories which are often kind of tittle-tattle stuff you know, well, <laughs> the German Chancellor said that British Prime Minister had a bad hairdo or something like that and then that's that's the story that will get into the newspaper um, on that same day, lots of other files are being released that are far more incriminating. I mean, for example, in 2014, I found that uh, British special forces had been involved in, in planning the raid on the Golden Temple in Amritsar, which led to a, a huge bloodbath in 1984. And I went to the archives after the press day. So I, I missed the press day and then went independently to look at the files. And so none of the press pack picked up on that story but I found it independently and it led to, to the prime minister ordering two government um, reviews into what had happened. So, I mean, there's, there's huge, and that took me a day at the archives to find that story. Oh, I think I'm thinking of maybe longer because of, uh, was it that film Spotlight where they did the, <laughs> the pieces for the Washington Post or maybe it was the Boston Globe? So in my mind, I'm thinking, yes, this takes lots of time and lots of money. <laughs> Not that that's a bad thing. It's just, it, you know, I think it, it does speak to um, that's something in the U.S., you talk a lot about who owns the press and who are they going to pay and the expectations for journalists and how you get in and what kind of stories you can write and who will approve it and who's funding it. Because, as you know, in the U.S., a lot of our papers do have that that private funding source and they dictate what kind of stories you can tell. And then if you're going to be independent journalist, who will who will fund that and who will read that? Yeah, I mean, so with Kinumini, I mean, it took years of going to the archives to, to build up the paper trail for that book. But at the same time, you know, you can find um, it just in one file enough for a front page story. 
Um, but I mean, with, with Declassified UK, I mean, we've been running for a year and just routinely publishing stories based on freedom of information responses or files that we found at the National Archives and, um, you know, using the government's own words about what their foreign policy has really entailed. And the Ministry of Defence blacklisted us um, after about 10 months. Um, they seemed to be completely fed up with with the fact that we were routinely um, holding them to account in this way that no one else in, in the media was doing anymore. And their press office said, you know, we no longer deal with your publication, which was completely unlawful and, and a breach of their own civil service code. But um, that just shows the kind of lack of tolerance of independent independent media and also just the fact that they just aren't used to being scrutinised like this anymore because much of the British press is has fallen into line and it's so kind of sycophantic with its coverage. Well, I've heard something similar happening in the US with the coverage of the government because the argument is that there used to be coverage for all of the local stuff happening and now they just want to do it for national. But people have missed that this used to be how, um, you know, you could get your legs as an up and coming journalist to do things on the city level and the state level, and they just do not fund those jobs anymore to cover what's happening in government there, uh, which was really interesting. And the person who gave a talk I was watching, he's a Republican and t- writing a book about Trump and talking about how he would followed all sorts of them for years, but it's not about your own political affiliation, right? It's about how that used to be considered news where you were at all the briefings, you were at all of the inquiries, everything was covered. And now that's just not, I certainly didn't grow up with journalism like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were talking about world in action earlier. I think with that, when that documentary strand was, was around, um, it meant that there was a generation of investigative TV reporters who could make a living from doing that kind of work and learning that trade. And I think it's been said since that, that, um, series was shut down you know there there really is a lack of kind of personnel to do that kind of work now because it just isn't really a sustainable career path anymore so um i think yeah it is a long-term kind of crisis um that's led to this the kind of news that we're that we're getting now and and the stories that are being missed because there just isn't the funding there for them well, can you, can you say a bit more about declassified UK status now? What's its status with the Foreign Office? Has it blacklisting, I guess, been overturned? Yeah, I was going to ask that too. Yeah, what's <laughs> are you guys fighting that or taking them to court? What's going on? Yeah, so we um, when when it happened, we um, alerted the the National Union of Journalists, who put out a very supportive statement, and other press freedom groups as well, press freedom groups around Europe. Um, and it led to the Council of Europe issuing a media freedom alert, uh, which the UK government had to formally respond to. And MPs started asking questions in Parliament. And initially, the response was very muted. Uh, but we had uh, a law firm write a letter to the government on our behalf as well. And after about two weeks, I think, the, the Ministry of Defence um, completely backtracked and actually wrote to us and apologized which is very rare for them to to apologize admitted they were wrong and said that they were going to launch a a review into what had happened so there's currently a, a government well it's, it's they call it an independent review it is is uh, underway to to get to the bottom of of why they decided to blacklist us so there's been a complete 180 turn there i think they were surprised at the extent of the backlash um the council of europe alert 
but also the Society of Editors, which is a very kind of mainstream uh, media industry body here in the UK. Uh, they wrote a letter to the government as well, raising concerns about what had happened. So I think people started to see, you know, even though Declassified is unique in the kind of investigative work it's doing, um, the rest of the media saw where this could go uh, if it wasn't challenged and that it would have a wider impact on press freedom and on the work they do. So I think that that led to a, a bit of solidarity and that that forced the government to um, to apologise. And I mean, we'll see what the outcome of this review is um, and how substantial it is. But um, yeah, so that, that was quite an interesting um, experience for such a young organisation. In terms of outreach, what's the strategy? Who's the readership and who do you hope to also reach? Yeah, we want to reach uh, as wide an audience as possible. Um, at the moment, we are partnered with the Daily Maverick, which is a South African news website um, and a newspaper. Um, so we have quite a lot of readers in South Africa and in the w wider African continent, um, which is quite good because, you know, many of our stories, we've, we've done a... a a big investigation into the role of MI6 in Kenya um, and in counterterrorism operations in Kenya. So, you know, often the impacts of British foreign policy are, are felt in the global south. Um, so having an audience there is is quite good for us. Um, but also, you know, we're building up our audience in the UK now um, and quite a wide, wide range. Um, you know, we've got readers down in, I've just been to uh work on a story down in the southwest of England um, based on a tip-off from a reader that we had there. So, and we also see in Parliament a lot of MPs, uh, particularly in Scotland, in the uh, Scottish independence movement are asking questions based on articles we've written. So it seems like we're reaching quite a broad geographical spread um, at this stage, which is quite So exciting. the scope isn't only international, it's also UK-based. What we found is that a lot of the kind of military training for repressive regimes is happening at um, uh, airfields in quite remote parts of the UK or part, quite isolated parts of the UK. So there's often a quite a local angle to some of the stories that we're writing. Um, and so that, that kind of will interest readers who live in those parts of Britain um, near to these military airfields that aren't otherwise being written about um you know the saudi air force are, are trading at raf valley which is in anglesey this this island off the north of wales so um you know that that's the kind of place that would be neglected by the traditional media so when we do a series of stories talking about the foreign policy implications of what's happening on that small island in north wales you know it becomes a very local story as well as an international story and um going back actually to my first pick of the week, which is the ITFA festival in Amsterdam. Do you find inclusion in documentary festivals useful at all for your work? To a degree, uh, what we found most useful were the for the Kinimini film were the Tamil film festivals. They were the most supportive, perhaps not surprisingly. Um, and also Carmarthen Bay, which is a film festival yeah. in Wales. Uh, I mean, because because of the pandemic, we kind of probably didn't push as far with film festivals as we might have done otherwise um, because it, it seemed to have less of a point when, when so many of them were being cancelled. But um, but no, I think with the bigger festivals like IDFA and Sheffield, it's, it is pretty difficult to break into those. And also, again, if you're trying to do a kind of newsy style of reporting, that doesn't necessarily fit very well with festivals 
so you can end up falling between the cracks um in that it's not not a festival style but it's also not quite right for television but um no i think the trouble is with the festivals though is often you know it costs money to enter and there's rarely any financial support from the festivals for what you're making in terms of your previous work could you tell us a bit more about what the follow-up to that was so you've done more investigative documentaries previously and have they led to things happening on the ground have they led to legal action yes yeah, so I've, I've been involved in in um with lou mcnamara uh my co-director we made a film before about uh, immigration detention centers in the uk and the scandal of of detainees being paid uh, one pound an hour to do essential work in the de- in the detention centres. Um, so they were being paid well below minimum wage um, to do things like cooking and cleaning the, deten- the detention centres. So that led to a legal challenge um, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I think ultimately it wasn't able to reverse the, the well to be able to get more pay for the detainees, but um, it was it was certainly a quite a strong challenge to the Home Office. So, yeah, I think often, you know, lawyers are quite often interested in the work that I do and in trying to follow it up with legal challenges. So, yeah, I think that's something that obviously th- these kind of investigative documentaries can can spark. Can you tell us what you're working on uh, next? Yeah, so I'm doing more investigations into UK foreign policy. I mean, we've been doing quite a lot on Saudi Arabia uh, UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia during the war in Yemen, which is the world's worst humanitarian cata- catastrophe, um, and exposing the extent of, of training for the Saudi armed forces that's going on in the UK. Um, so f- a few more stories in the, uh, in the pipeline um, uh, along that, that theme. Was there anything that you've uh, come across in your years of work, in your career, that where you felt you've been completely shut down? I, I think it's this sort of the strand that declassified UK has been set up to cover um you know I think covering British foreign policy as a British journalist is one of the hardest things to do in British in the British media you know if you're writing stories about human rights abuses not just in Russia and China and Iran but in countries that are the UK's allies in countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt Sri Lanka in countries where the UK is involved at a very high level in those countries' affairs, and yet some hideous abuses of human rights are taking place, you know, uh, genocides, famines, mass incarceration of political prisoners. Um, If you want to routinely write stories about that and not just do it maybe once or twice a year, then there's almost no place for you in the UK media industry. Uh, And that's why Declassified was set up, to fill that gap and to secure funding independently so that at least some journalists could do that work. And, and obviously we're trying to expand as, as much as we can. So, Cora, do you have any questions? Well, I do because, so looking at the film, I was n- not familiar with any any of these issues. And I'm not too familiar with sort of anything that's happening post-colonial with the UK, actually. So you were talking about before the connection to the present. So what do you see more you know, broadly, what's the story? Because I couldn't determine if it was about um, protecting business interests overseas. Is it about privatizing empires? So no longer wanting to make it the British 
military's main objective. So outsourcing that, so to speak. Um, is it a story of race and maintaining those sort of racial relationships through the interventions that happen below the radar that no one's covering? I mean, what would you say more broadly and how that connects that to other things happening in current events? Yes, I think the connection with the present is that we see this kind of continued fear over uh, what's now a relatively small number of, of refugees coming by boat to the UK um, and this sense that, um, you know, there are all these people fleeing wars and coming to the UK and why are they coming here? Why aren't they going to other European countries or other parts of the world? And there's just so little understanding about the UK's involvement in those conflicts and also the fact that the UK is the second largest exporter of weapons. We have one of the biggest private security industries in the world and all that's completely legal. There's, there's, you know, no prosecutions for mercenaries in the UK in the last 150 years. Um, it's, you know, you can sell arms to Saudi Arabia uh, to help them bomb Yemen. Um, and all that creates refugees. And even if it doesn't create refugees today, um, when you sell arms to a repressive regime in 10 years time, it may very well create huge numbers of refugees. And so I just kind of wanted to show um, how the UK is involved in, in destabilizing countries uh, around the world, in this particular case, Sri Lanka, and, and causing massive suffering and an exodus of people, um, just to kind of educate the public so that there's more awareness about why we have 200,000 Tamil expatriates living in the UK. You know, many of them came here in the 1980s, fleeing the kind of violence that Keeney Mina's helicopter gunship pilots were directly involved in inflicting. So then would you also argue then perhaps this is, uh, you know, using the example you did of Sri Lanka, it is the miners canary of sorts to say that's what happened then. But what's happening now in terms of how these um, private, I don't know, are they called contractors or mercenaries? I'm not even sure if we're using the right word here, contractors, how they're still operating throughout the world and any country could be next or any country with um, business interests could be next. Do you see it in that way at all? Yeah, I think it's also it could be next, but also the consequences could take a long time to reach us. Mm -hmm, but they mm -hmm. are still consequences of things that we've caused through having such a permissive attitude towards arms sales and towards mercenaries. Um, so, I mean, I think this will repeat itself. I mean, contractors or mercenaries, some of the BA systems um, staff in Saudi Arabia who are heavily involved in maintaining the Saudi Air Force. They wouldn't call themselves mercenaries, mm -hmm. but I mean, they're, they're getting pretty close to that definition. Um, they're stopping short of the front line, but the Saudi Air Force wouldn't last long without them. They're helping with the maintenance every day. So, yeah, I think, you know, very little has changed since the 1980s, really. Um, I mean, Keeney Meeny showed what, how much you could get away with, and none of them have been held to account as of yet. So a prosecution would be historic. I think that would, would start to send shockwaves through the industry. Um, but until that point, no, I think this is largely um, still what, what goes on. How optimistic are you that there will be a prosecution? Let's see. I think the fact they've even opened an investigation was surprising for me. So I, I don't want to rule out the prospect of there being further um, action. But um, no, I think it's... It's a very tough, um, yeah, it's a very tough thing to get uh, the British police to, to hold mercenaries to account um, because their track records 
so far in that regard is is completely um, lacking. Fair enough. Um, so, Gary, any last questions? No, none from me. Phil, anything you want to add? Um, no, no, but it's been great talking to you both. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was Phil Miller, who was talking to us about his documentary, Kini Mini. And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks' time with our top picks and perhaps another guest. And you can follow us on Twitter at MyDialerama. I'll be sure to put any links to anything we've mentioned in the blurb below. Thanks for listening. <laughs>